Welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. Um, for full uh, full disclosure, uh, just to, if you ever needed any more evidence that PJ is the nicest man on the planet... Um, <laughs> I think we've been talking for nearly 20 minutes before going live. Uh, and PJ, uh, you know, has very kindly basically just listened to me ramble. Because uh, uh, we've been we've been talking all manner of stuff. And um, uh, yeah, he's, he's just a saint, everybody. I just want you to remember that. We had a lot to talk about. And, you know, I'm a giver. <laughs> <laughs> he really is. He really is. And, um, you know, we, we were talking about uh, Kickstarter. And we were also talking about, more excitingly, Red Pandas. Because uh, I think pandas. that's the real highlight of the week, PJ. Oh, my God. So, as we record, by the time you folks listen to this, it will have been and gone. But as we record, I have, let's just say, a big birthday coming up. And uh, my 22. wife, as, as part of my birthday present, very kindly bought me a Red Panda experience at Longleat, where we, for those who don't know, maybe some of our US listeners, Longleat is a safari park over here in the UK, where they've got enclosures that you can drive through and monkeys will tear bits off your car, (laughs) (laughs) and there you can drive past lions and tigers and cheetahs and wolves, and it's amazing, but then they have a more traditional sort of zoo area, and what we got to do yesterday, as well as the normal safari park stuff, was go into the red panda enclosure with one of the zookeepers and help to feed the red pandas. And I got to touch a red panda, and it might be the greatest day of my life. And that includes my wedding day. I'm very sorry, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you should have seen uh, the photos that PJ was was sharing of his adventure, because um, you've never seen a happier... Uh, loon in your life like every photo of pj is just grinning like an absolute idiot like um i was i was i was um vicariously very happy for you i was very happy for you basically (laughs) thank you but yeah i mean john puts the links to our social presences in the description it's all there on my social media all of them my twitter my facebook my instagram they've all got photos of me and red panda so feel free to go and have a look it's true i mean it's it's um it's arguably the best red panda themed content you'll see online at the moment damn right <laughs> speaking and now speak- as a souvenir i'm drinking coffee out of my red panda mug that i bought yesterday <laughs> i thought you were gonna say out of a red panda skull and i was like oh god that mm. went dark <clears throat> no i love those little <laughs> things would never speaking of uh wonderful things that happened on social media um the instagram 
algorithm is a is a mystery to me of the best of times. Oh God, yeah. Uh, and but I um, I get a lot of um, comic arcs coming up on my feed, uh, and when I search and browse, and um, I've been getting uh, weirdly, I don't know, it clearly starting to know me quite well. I've been getting a lot of uh, pages from John Byrne's run on Superman. Oh, okay. Which I'd never seen before, but I was kind of intrigued by. And and uh, yesterday, suddenly, I saw someone had done fan art of Kyle, Kyle in his classic costume. Mm. And I didn't even like it, but I did hover over it, and I was like, oh, that's cool. That's good to see. And now, suddenly, all I'm getting is Kyle Rayner. That's a good thing, though. There's not enough Kyle Rayner in the world these days, I feel. Maybe there's something in the air, PJ. Like, maybe... I don't know, maybe the time has come. Maybe we were ahead of the curve in reappraising Kyle. Maybe it's, you know how, like, Jeff Johns and his generation of comic writers came in and they're the ones who sort of sort of grew up with Barry and Hal as the Flash and Green Lantern and so all of a sudden they're back even though they haven't really been going concerns for a good 20 years by the time they come back. Mm. But now the generation coming up are the ones like us who grew up with Wally and Kyle as Flash and Green Lantern. So maybe we're going to kill off Barry and Hal again and bring back Wally and Kyle as the correct status quo. Just all I ask is give them the good costumes. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just I can't get on board with Wally wearing anything else at this point. Unless it's the Kid Flash costume, the original Kid Flash costume. I'd, I'd be all right with him wearing the Dark Flash costume from the last issue as Ooh. well, to be honest, because I do like that outfit. Yeah, that could work. Yeah. But hasn't he got like some weird, like, he's, I don't know, I can't keep track. He's kind of back at the moment, isn't he? Wally is back. I'm not, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to Google Wally West. <laughs> this because is I have no idea what the current status quo is. I know there was there was an event that brought him back because they did New 52 where they introduced a new Wally West. Yeah. And then somehow classic Wally West also still existed. Um, yeah, because wasn't it something like he was the one character who hadn't been absorbed into like the universal reboot because I don't know he'd somehow been like between universes or something. Yeah, I'm reaching here. Yeah, something like that. I didn't read it. Uh, so yeah, he comes back. I think he's still like the Flash, but not obviously the focus of the Flash books is Barry now. But he's got a costume that's sort of like his. Kid Flash costume in shape, so his hair's poking out the top, but mm. red like the Flash, but with a silver lightning bolt on the chest. And, oh, I don't know. What are we, like, What what's the situation with Kyle at the moment? Because, like, you think by the time we get to, by the time we get to JLA Avengers, or Avengers JLA, he's wearing the, uh, his updated costume, which is, you know, fine and all. It's just not. It's not classic crab face, Kyle, which is a very iconic look. So I was never sure why they wanted to go away from it. Wasn't there? I'm sure. Again, New Fifty Two era. Um, sorry, I've just read something interesting about Wally, so we'll come back to that in a bit. But New Fifty Two era Kyle was still a going concern after they brought back Hal. Kyle was sort of the central character in was it new guardians oh wasn't he running around with a a bunch of multicolored lanterns as a team? yeah so they you had the 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 emotional spectrum which 
I really liked at the time Blackest Night, even though it was a Hal Jordan, not a Kyle Rayner story. Kyle had some good stuff to do in it. And I liked the idea of the emotional spectrum and the different different lantern cores. And I think they slightly over-egged it since then. But yeah, Kyle was part of a team of one member of each core, I think. Mm. And he sort of led it as that team's Green Lantern. Um, was he? And I he was. Think... He was running around in a different. I, I feel like the costume is really the sticking point for me. Like I, I'm grab. I'm always glad when Kyle yeah. has something to do. I but think if you're just had... putting him in like generico Green Lantern costume. That's not going to do it for me. Because he has his his sort of second costume, um, which is the one he wears for JLA Avengers and obviously the JLA books at the time, which is a slightly more traditional Green Lantern costume, though still with a bit of a Kyle take. But then I think he switched to another costume later on. Which the only detail I remember is it's it was a different costume again, but he went back to the crab mask. Right. Okay. I want to say, because surely, uh, like, the crab mask is what we pay for. The crab, the crab mask, and the incredible nineties curtains. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember there was a bit that I got very excited about during Blackest Night when Kyle is battling Parallax in his own mind. And at one point, he sort of becomes his idealised version of Green Lantern, and it's him in the classic Kyle costume oh, with the God, curtains. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that is that is ideal. Um, according to Wikipedia, Wally is the main Flash again at the moment. Is he? As of The Flash 768, Barry Allen departs to join Justice Incarnate, and Wally is the primary Flash in the Flash series. And huh. as far as wikipedia can tell me sort of still is barry's around but wally is the main flash in the flash book interesting maybe there's hope for kyle yet well i'm gonna i'm, I'm googling kyle rayner <laughs> well, actually haven't we gained like three or four more green lanterns oh, of earth that. since then well, there's hundreds of them like, i mean earth is a bloody nightmare i can imagine why the green lantern core would maybe assign an excessive amount of lanterns to this planet, but still. So I'm just I'm trying to just go to the bottom of Kyle's Wikipedia page to see what his current status is. There's new 52 Kyle with his crab mask. When's that? Lights out. I don't know what that is. DC Rebirth. I'm very excited. Ah, DC Rebirth. What year was that? That seems to be the end of Kyle. Okay, I don't like that. What are you <laughs> what are you suggesting? Yeah, there's during DC Rebirth, this is after they've introduced loads of Green Lan new Green Lanterns. Yeah. Uh Oa suffers a devastating attack from unidentified assailants. Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner are missing in action, and that is the last thing. This is a twenty sixteen event. And that is the last thing on Kyle's Wikipedia page. Now, Do I don't... They're... That might not be complete. Maybe there is, you know, story since then where he's come back. But it seems that Kyle hasn't been in a comic for six years, according to Wikipedia. Oh, that hurts. Yeah. That hurts, PJ. Yeah. You... Yep. Screw you, DC. I... I know, like, you know, there's never, there's never an override overarching continuity because you know the nature of a serialized ongoing format like of like comics like superhero comics means that's never going to happen and particularly 
in DC where you have like regular universe wide reboots. But like, it's it's mad to me because it's like effectively in the in the grand history of the JLA, Kyle served with distinction during one of the 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 team's most pivotal periods. Yeah, and and now you know if there is any continuity in the universe, he's effectively been missing for a few years in space, and like. I don't know. The first thing that popped into my head was like, what if Superman misses him? I was thinking like, who who up on the watchtower, if indeed they have a watchtower anymore, would be like lighting a candle for Kyle, thinking like, oh yeah, my mate Kyle, haven't seen him in a long time, hope he's okay. Yeah, well, I feel like if, if DC hadn't reset continuity two or three times in the last 15 years or whatever, then yeah, Superman and Batman would probably say they'd rather have Kyle than Hal on the JLA, but... Obviously, that's not where we are. God, that's sad, isn't it? To, to think there's there's at least one quite solid continuity from the last five, six, eight, ten years, or however long it's been, where Kyle was never on the league. Yeah. Ugh. We yeah. didn't know what we had, PJ. The world, the world turned its back oh, no. on, on oh, the no. crowd mask. You and I, we knew what we had. I'll tell you what, PJ. Like, um, like Kyle himself... Uh, as the last surviving Green Lantern, uh, we we are we are torchbearers. We're carrying the torch for uh, <laughs> for uh, for Kyle. Damn right. Well, PJ, I mean, um, segueing beautifully into talk of changing eras and uh, kind of universe shattering moments, um, it's time for a new book. It is, and it is very exciting and very sad. Because we are on to World War Three, the final volume in the Grant Morrison run on JLA. The final volume of Grant Morrison's run on JLA and the first DC comic I ever owned. <laughs> That's bizarre. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm holding it right now and uh the 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 kind of waves of good feelings and memories coming off this book are are profound. Like um this book probably changed the course of my life, really. I remember this book coming out because I was already reading JLA and I'm pretty sure it came out late in the year 2000. So I think I'd gone to university mm. and I already had all the other books and I was waiting for this one. I vaguely knew that this was the end of the Morrison run. This was the big storyline so i was really excited and when it came out i think i went to forbidden planet in cardiff and bought a copy the copy i'm holding right now so this is the first one of my dc graphic novels my jla graphic novels that isn't a titan reprint or doesn't have a titan sticker on it it's just a pure dc one. Oh, same forbidden here planet. yeah same here and uh yeah i devoured it i read the whole thing through in one sitting and i was like yes i love it oh god <laughs> Well, I can't remember exactly when I got it, but I, I think I can kind of pinpoint it because, as we, as I said, God, God knows how many times on the show, my first kind of exposure to this series was in the school library, mm. uh, where inexplicably they had a copy of um, uh, New World Order, American Dreams, and World Without Grown Ups, and I'm trying to pinpoint it in my head, but uh, I started secondary school in '97. And I left it in 2004. Mm. So it's got to be, you know, some point, I want to guess some point between 98 and probably 2002 when I kind of noticed that. 
And I think I felt it was a bit, it was a bit ridiculous. I was like, oh my God, like, what's this like, you know, Flash running around the planet? Like, this isn't what Marvel heroes do. This is so over the top and everything. And, <laughs> and then I, 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 you know, I didn't think about it. And then, you know, later on, definitely before I started university, mm. I found this book in Ottakers. And I want to say that I bought this book and Earth, Earth 2 at the same time. And I took them home, and they were very different books. But then I realised that they also had something in common, which I know now is that they were written by the same person. Yeah. And I was like, "Ooh, this this Morrison individual might be someone to keep an eye on." <laughs> I I really do feel like, and I, I think we'll probably cover this in more detail in about eight episodes' time. But it it is a towering achievement this run on JLA, the fact that it is all these individual stories, but it does still build to something that Morrison was able to tell a definitive story, the story that they wanted to tell with these characters. Mm. And and yeah, I don't think they're given enough credit for this run sometimes. Well, no. And, you know, I think um, perhaps evidence alone that like this story ends with, um, an event called World War Three, which isn't like a true DC event, so to speak, you know, capital E. But like, I know a few years later, DC just did an event called World World War Three, which was completely different to this, and that was did, an event, capital E. Yeah, what well, didn't that that was that was weird. That was an event that also tied into. I can't. It was countdown. Countdown to Infinite Crisis. Oh God, I thought it was earlier than that. It was either it was part of one of their because it was when they were doing one of their weekly books. I don't think it was fifty two, and I think it was Countdown that came after that. So I think it must have been Countdown. Sorry, Countdown to Final Crisis. Sorry. Oh God, um, are we are we talking about the um, the Imperiax? No. Thing? Oh God, Ooh. have they done several World War Three? Oh my God, is there another World War Three? Yeah, there was one which was like a, a Black Adam focused event that oh. was during yes. I'm sure was it was 52. during countdown to final crisis I think I have some of that but I, I there's something about black adam in new 52 doesn't he he start a big old fight in that yeah yeah cuz that was when they were really trying to push black adam I think that was around the time when it was first announced that the rock was interested in doing a black adam movie cuz that's been a going concern oh god for it has hasn't it yeah years now and so DC started building the character up and trying to push him and made him really central to Countdown to Final Crisis, which then enveloped this weird little World War Three. I think it was a four-part book with some tie-ins and stuff in the middle of Countdown. And it was... It, I, I don't remember enjoying it that much, to be honest. But yeah, I think you're right. I think the Imperiax Superman storyline was also called World War Three. Yeah, yeah. And so clearly, um, I don't know, maybe... No, maybe sorry. It- that was called Our Worlds at War. Oh, was it? Yeah, it's just come to me. I remember buying some of the tie-ins for that. That was Our Worlds at War. But that was only a year or two after this World War Three. Ah, we see. Well, that's John being an idiot then. But yeah, but that, that was more in this era because I remember, I think even like Young Justice was still a thing. Yes, yeah, I remember yeah. having the Young Justice tie-in issues. Yeah. Wild. The, um, I think, I just remember like when I, because I'm looking at the cover now. Which uh, the cover of the trade is actually just a reprint of the cover of the last issue of this storyline, which was yeah, issue um, forty-one, which is I think the only time the trades do that, isn't it? Where they just re 
reprint one of the issue covers as the trade cover. I mean, it's a hell of a cover. It really is. Lots of people on it. Only three ongoing members of the league. <laughs> yes, it's odd, isn't it? And it's um, and you know, talking about like, you know, the first time kind of owning a DC comic, uh, you know, because again, as we said many a time, there was a period where they were harder to kind of come by. Uh, and I really only knew Superman. Or maybe I'm telling a lie because I I had a copy of Marvel versus DC, mm. which I think I got earlier. So I want to say that like that's when I first saw Kyle because he has a very brief fight with the Silver Surfer. Yes. So I was like, oh, this Green Lantern fellow's kind of a bit interesting and weird. I've never seen that kind of power set before in Marvel. And then, of course, I pick up this book and, you know, going like, oh, well, I'm more of a Marvel guy, but I'll give it a try. And then just absolutely falling in love with this weird world. And uh, and Kyle was, you know, I'm just thinking, I know we talk about Kyle a lot, but he was a standout from this book for me because I'm like, oh, I have honestly, at that point in my life, I'd never, you know, the idea of like a ring that gave you powers... I was so ignorant when it came to DC and I, I just, I loved the Green Lantern concept and it, and it just seemed so much, at the time, to me at least, it seemed so different to something like the X-Men or Fantastic Four, which was really all I knew. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. I think when just when you're dealing with, with Superman and threats that it's a very, it's a different, it's it's just a different vibe, isn't it? The DC, certainly at this time anyway, the DC way of doing things to the marvel way i think jla avengers touches on it and deals with it really really well sort of the differences between the universes and it shows also that they they absolutely can coexist and should Mm. you know they can they can deliver completely different niches like you know they're all all these characters are heroes they just you know the types of stories they deal with are you know are very different you know i think around this time uh, my brother and i were collecting um uh, the Panini reprints. Of, my brother was collecting uh, X Men, mm. uh, so we're kind of uh, post onslaught. You know, I was collecting, I was probably collecting Avengers. You know, uh, Busick and Perez. You know, and it's like, um, you know, you can imagine like uh, all the Avengers are dealing with. Oh my God, the Exemplars are attacking New York, and um, that's pretty big and epic. But also, like Captain America has to get on his motorbike <laughs> yeah. to like ride into <laughs> battle. Whereas, like here, it's like, oh my God, like. Well, as we will get into it, literally there is something like the size of the solar system, like coming towards us, and you know the characters they don't talk like characters I've ever I've ever read before, and again the voice of Morrison kind of shining through, but it was just really, really like weird and edgy and exciting, and um, I, I hesitate to use the phrase like grown up, but like I think at the time I was like, oh my god, this is a this is a grown-up comic. Like, this is <laughs> sophisticated and weird. One little touch I do like on this cover. I feel like this is a cover we'll get into a bit more when we get to the issue. But there's, at the bottom, you've got um, Howard Porter and John Dell's initials, HPJD. <laughs> and then the date's 96, 99, because that's the years the series ran for. And then just underneath that, a little thanks, Grant. And I love that. I think it's brilliant. I do wonder if at this point Howard Porter had actually had a conversation with with, with Grant. <laughs> I do hope they've spoken at some point. It wouldn't surprise me if the two of them didn't speak until after the series was finished. Yeah, and of course Porter stayed on the book for a few extra issues. Started the Mark Wade run, didn't he? 
Well, he did indeed. It's not even like this is his swan song, you know. So it is nice, as you say, that that he would put Thanks Grant on the cover because, yeah, it's not like he was going. He was kicking around, but it clearly meant something to be doing this 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 moment, this moment in time. Yeah, it didn't stick around for long because I, I, Mark Wade's first proper story in JLA was Tower of Babel. And I don't think Porter even draws all of it. Interesting. Yeah, no, come to think of it. I think it's just, I think Porter and Morrison just had slightly different lengths of contract for the book or something. One of those weird quirks of comics. Maybe it was some element of, you know, if they were bringing on a new writer, and at the time, you know, Morrison... I do apologise, there's a a fly buzzing around the room, and if that comes up in the audio... (laughs) I uh, couldn't hear it. I guess it's real, it's authentic. Uh... But uh, yeah, I guess, could it have been like a degree of continuity from an editorial perspective? If you're like, Maybe. well, we've got a new writer coming on and Morrison was such a, a hit, you know, do we, yeah, do we, do we keep Porter on to kind of ease the transition maybe? Maybe. Yeah, that would make sense. All I know is that like, I was like, who's this green fellow with a big X on his chest? Never seen that before. <laughs> um, why is there a hero in the bottom left who is wearing yellow and brown? Those are not heroic colours. And also, um, who's this red dude with a, with a big T on his forehead? <laughs> and I was like, oh, these, are, these are weird characters. I like the look of them. Yeah. <laughs> it well, is a great cover. It is, and, uh, and as you say, PJ, maybe we'll, we'll kind of touch upon it more when we get to that actual issue. So as not to I think we should. I think we should. This, this trade collects issues 34 to 41. So we've got eight issues to look at. Um, it's an interesting book, definitely. The way the first two issues are structured as compared to the rest of the book is is frankly bizarre. <laughs> I think we'll get into more of that next episode. Why well, um uh to talk about how much this book meant to me and is kind of influential to me. Uh I, I I've just turned the page to get the uh kind of um roll call kind of double page spread, which Obviously, didn't see print in an original issue and was only put together for the trade. But I'm just realizing that, like, I copied the layout of this roll call uh, almost identically for volume five of After, I think. <laughs> I can't remember how much of that was a conscious decision. I mean, it is a fairly generic roll call template. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just looking at that fly. It's driving me mad. <laughs> fly, you're ruining my moment. Never mind. Oh, maybe I'll kill it in a moment. Yeah, no, I like to think so. But um, yeah, I, I think on some some level, I've been trying to recreate this book ever since. I mean, it's a perfect book. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Copy but, from the best. But PJ, I mean... You know, okay, we it's like it's a changing of the guard. You know, we're we're moving into the new final era of JLA. Like, where do we stand? Like, what's the what's the kind of status quo as we go into this? Well, really, it's it's we're coming off the back of two feeling issues uh, by Mark Wade, Devin Grayson, Mark Pajarillo, Al, and essentially we know something's coming. We've we've known for a while hints from both Zauriel and then from the new gods from Orion and Barda that mm. something, some big threat is coming to Earth, and that's that's kind of where we are at the beginning of this book. Yeah, I mean, 
in many ways the JLA has just been kind of going through business as usual for a little while, as weird as that has been. Like, you know, we've had um, obviously the, the Ultramarines, uh, we've had um, this whole scenario with um, fifth dimensional genies kind of wreaking havoc on Earth. So mm. for most of the leaguers, they're not really aware that there's kind of like a growing threat, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, they, they're just carrying on. Business as usual, let's let's fight bad guys. John's not around at the moment. He's still on his leave of absence, though you wouldn't know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and speaking of, like, uh, John's absence... Uh, absence? God, I said that weird. Speaking of his absence from the series, um, it was always a bit... It was a slight mystery to me, because obviously he returns at some point over the course of his story, and that's a very cool moment. But um, it wasn't until years later that I finally tracked down the DC 1 million trade where I finally realised what they were actually talking about and why he'd taken a leave of absence. Yeah, it's mentioned briefly once in Justice for All at the beginning, when, at the end of the Ultramarine storyline, when our man comes in, oh, Jean's on a leave of absence. The problem is, you've then got more issues in that trade where Jean is around by the other guest writers, and you had uh, the other JLA stuff happening outside of the main series, so... Technus Imperative with the Titans, um, World Without Grown-Ups were all around this time. A few one-shots, Foreign Bodies and Primeval that I think were published in this time as well, where these writers who were doing these books clearly just weren't aware that Jean was on a leave of absence and he's just there and in the in those books and on the League. Yeah, because it's odd, because it's not even as if like Jean disappeared to go have adventures in his own book, because as far as I'm aware, he didn't actually have an ongoing series at the time. He did briefly, but it didn't last oh. very long. No. As we've said before, they've always kind of struggled, I think, to um, yeah. know what to do with him when he's on his own. Yeah. Is that sh- yeah, and I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just retreading all ground now, but I always... He, he's such an integral part of the league to me. It always struck me as weird that he wasn't part of it in um, the New 52. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a mistake, DC. So, yeah, so... You know, as as we stand, you know, uh, you know, everything's technically fine. You know, maybe like uh, every other day, uh, a minor threat ar- uh, arises to, you know, I don't know, kind of destroy the eastern seaboard of America, but the JLA always stop it. Uh, they're Earth's, you know, first class and best line of defense on the moon, and really, there's no threat they can't handle. Uh, and I guess as we kind of go into this, um, something bad is happening on the Watchtower. Yeah, there's an intruder who's effectively broken in and is just getting through all the security devices that Steel has built. And the only members of the League on the Watchtower at the moment are Steel and Huntress, who are sort of, we're, we've got our hands full. And we just see this shadowy caped figure making making their way through the Watchtower, dodging energy blasts and hidden in smoke. And we also then learn... Because Oracle has called up to say, hey, there's a riot at Bell Reef Prison and we've got League members there who have their hands full. Can can you guys help? And Steel's basically saying, nope, we've got this problem we have to deal with. And again, you know, young John picking this up, going like, who the hell is Steel? Uh, <laughs> what are they doing on the moon? Who is this threat kind of coming towards you? You know, you're right in the action. I was like, what the hell is going on? But I, I was intrigued, like right off the bat. Yeah. And it's, it's a great first page, straight into the action. Yeah, and isn't the weird? Um, 
isn't now PJ, my memory's failing me here, but isn't this the weird thing that I think we touched upon maybe in one million? Because the hour man virus in one million causes, uh, shall we say, a degree of like chaotic thinking and rioting mm. and stuff. Yeah. Did they reference there being some kind of like prison riot back then? Or am I going mad? I think they mentioned one, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I always felt like, again, as we have discussed on the show, I felt like maybe Morrison was trialing a few ideas in DC 1 million, which maybe they then decided to explore a lot further in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but we cut from there to the prison riot, and we just get a full splash page of Kyle. He, fair play, he's knocked out a prisoner, has just stood over him, but his costume is torn to shreds. He's got cuts all over him, and this is key. Where his ring should be, there is nothing. Just a slightly paler bit of skin that hasn't been getting enough sun on his finger. Which is a lovely detail in itself, because it's, it suggests rightly that Kyle wears the ring a lot. Uh, it also, presumably, uh, would make keeping his secret identity a little a little difficult if he has such <laughs> an unusual tan line on his finger. Yeah, True. True. It's it's a lovely little detail on this page as well that I think I did miss the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. I think it is one of those things that's easy to miss, and then you go back and go, "Oh, of course." The a weird thing about this trade is that um, for this particular story, they don't continue it. Um, but for this particular issue, when reprinted in the trade, um, they've um, flipped the pagination around. So. Oh, have they? Yeah, because um, the page with steel... Oh, yes, of course. Would, yeah, would normally have fallen on the right side. So this, in issue form, would have been a page turn. You flip it over, and it's like, oh, my God, there's Kyle. You know, that big kind of reveal moment would have been on the other side of the page, weirdly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that is... Because <laughs> basically one of the first things you see when you open the book. The... Um, but PJ, um, Kyle, as you say, is uh, is in a prison. There's fires burning. It looks pretty hellish. Uh, it's certainly a bit of a shock from, you know, where last we saw our heroes. This seems very kind of grim and desperate. Uh, and he's being attacked by a bunch of villains. How many can you name, PJ? So on this page, uh, we have Multiman, mm. the Rainbow Raider... <laughs> Uh, Dr. Light, um, the crazy quilt, I think that guy is, and yes. I want to say uh, Dr. Spectro. Ah, right. Yes, that was. Um, that's always been the one character I've never been able to... It sounded like a quiz. I was actually hoping you could educate me. That was <laughs> the one character I've never been able to name on this page. Yeah, yeah. But Kyle is surrounded, which is a problem. And uh, this is also our title page, PJ, if you could do the honours. It is. So the title, The Ant and the Avalanche. Grant Morrison, writer, Howard Porter, penciler, John Dell, inker, Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, heroic age separations, Tony Bernard, associate editor, Dan Raspler, editor. So right off the bat, the stakes have been have been uh, elevated. Um, and, uh, you know, all we really know through a bit of Skeel's dialogue, and this is one of those things that Morrison does very well with just kind of like inferred plot points um we know there's a riot at a prison and because kyle's all bloodied we can assume that he is trying to assist and that's all the intro you get because right off the bat um these villains start kind of wailing on kyle basically um we get dr light 
who is wearing uh, just a prison uniform, which I kind of love. And uh, I didn't know the character at the time, and I certainly didn't know that he's probably in prison following his defeat, the defeat of the Injustice Gang. Yes, yeah, that was the la- the only other thing I'd read with Dr. Light in it at this point would have been Rock of Ages. Yeah, and uh, all I knew is that this dude, appear- his head appears to be on fire, which is lovely. And um, he uh, he um, sucks the uh, the light out of Kyle's optic nerve, thus blinding him. Yes, so this is where the villains do start just laying into Kyle. Kyle does manage to punch one of the multi-mans or multi-mens <laughs> in the face because there are loads of them. While Crazy Quilt apparently tears the warden in half. And that's when I realised that this comic's going to be a bit different because, yes. yeah, we have exposed ribs. I mean, it's in shade, so there's no blood, but, like, yeah, that that man is a carcass now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's someone shouting, my green ray will turn his nerve impulses to molasses. They don't want him thrashing around. And then we cut to a guy with red hair and a little red goatee who's just sort of walking away. And this is the red dart, and this is also the man who stole Green Lantern's ring. Which is, like, A, I had no idea who the red dart was. I barely had any idea who the Green Lantern was. But that's kind of the point. Like, the, the, you know, through his narration, and and it's weird because the red dart becomes our kind of, essentially our our protagonist in a weird way for this story. Uh, He's a nobody. He's like a he's like a Z-list hero, a uh, villain. Sorry, uh, at the best of times, like his only gimmick is that he has a uh, a red little gun that fires um, essentially harmless darks, but they um, they um, they kind of paralyze people for about a minute. That's literally all he does, and yeah. he he shot Kyle. Yeah, and I don't think I've ever read another comic that this character has been in. No. No, I keep trying to picture like in my head whether like I know this character or I've seen this character in any way, but my brain keeps going back to the Red Bee, mm. which uh, ironically enough is also referenced in this story. Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have to assume the Red Dart was a going concern. Well, not not a particularly interesting one, but given Morrison's kind of encyclopedic knowledge of this sort of thing, I have to assume that Morrison didn't just make up a new character. No, well, we also get some... In his narration, we get some of the... Uh, we get told that this red dart bought the gun and costume from another character and stole someone else's name. Mm. So it's like there's there's been someone else with this gimmick and someone else with this name previously in the comics, I guess. I don't know the history of the character. And I kind of actually love how it's weird that it's such an unusual decision that we end up spending so much time in this guy's head. Because he's such a nobody, but that's kind of what makes it brilliant in a way. I'm I'm checking actually, and okay. Uh, this version of the Red Dart was created by Grant Morrison and Howard Porter in this comic. Oh, interesting. I guess it's fair. And in fact, might this might be his only appearance? Oh, I can see that. I can totally get that. Because also, who's going who's gonna to carry a torch enough to resurrect this character down the line? 
Yeah, I think this is the only appearance of this character. He works as a perfect, not as a, it's not a joke, he's not a joke, but he, he he's, he's a plot point, basically. And if you need a nameless, nobody, non-celebrity villain, he's perfect in this role. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the Red Dart has um, shot Kyle, temporarily paralyzing him, has nicked his ring, which um, I, I, it's maybe a subtle thing, but I, I kind of like the idea that like even though he's holding it in his palm, it's like maybe levitating a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it does look like that. And while everybody is like rioting, and you know the the um, all these villains, superpowered villains, are just beating the crap out of Kyle, and all the other you know kind of prisoners are cheering him on, and it it seems really hellish in this prison. Um, the Red Dart seems to be the only one with a plan because he's running the other way with Kyle's ring. Yeah, well, his narration even says, the place is going crazy. I love a riot, but I'm not dumb like those guys. And then we see the multi-man's men's, I'm never going (laughs) to get it right, holding Kyle while Dr. Light grabs the front of his costume and is about to punch him, presumably fairly hard, when there's like a, a loud noise as the darts... Narration tells us that uh, that a sonic disruptor just went off, and then Aquaman bursts into the prison. And also, I should say another another point where Young John is like, "Who the hell is this guy? He's amazing." Because it's it Aquaman, is, and he's yeah, got a gun. He's got his massive cannon on his back, and he's just ripping bars apart, dripping with water as he walks through. With obviously the the best Aquaman costume of all time and the long hair and the beard. Um, Again, I, I'm just talking about weird things that, you know, naive young John was surprised by. And I was like, oh, superheroes can have beards. That's fun. <laughs> uh, but Aquaman's presence, badass uh, because it is, uh, is enough to cause uh, the villains to momentarily uh, kind of falter. Uh, because... They all look a bit nervous, but then a couple of them are like, oh, it's, it's only it's only the fish guy. We can take him. To which Aquaman responds, most of your powers are dependent on light. My eyes are adapted to see at 6,000 fathoms. And then the room is plunged into darkness. And he goes, think about it. <laughs> yeah, and then the narration tells us that all the shouting and laughing stops something invisible brushes past the dart and he says, I think it was the Rainbow Raider trying to escape. But then we see Zauriel just appear and punch the invisible Rainbow Raider out with one hit. Okay, so also, the Rainbow Raider is basically like an evil Flash, right? Yeah, he's he's definitely a Flash villain. He, I don't think he was um, particularly a going concern at this point because people thought he was silly with the, you know, the name, the Rainbow Raider, the brightly coloured costume. Uh, very Morrison move to bring him back in this context, I think. But also, you talk about like a needless thing, a needless but cool plot point. Mor- okay, the scene is Kyle is being beaten up by a bunch of villains. Morrison's take on it is to go, what if I uh, handpicked a bunch of miscellaneous bizarre villains, all of whom have the power to control light in some capacity? And then, and then we'll make a plot point out of it. Like nobody asks, nobody asks for that, Grant. It's incredible. And according to the uh, the DC wiki, 
this is an actual prison gang and the Belle Reeve, and their prison gang name is the Color Queens. <laughs> well, that's that's somebody who read this book and was like, "Oh, I'm going to put that on the wiki." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Now it's official. It's locked in time. Also, PJ again, young John. We've just had a bearded fish man kick ass, looking cool, and now apparently the league have an angel on board. I didn't know who Zariel was. That that doesn't an angel. That doesn't seem like it's going to be something that's formative for John. No, no, it's funny that, isn't it? Yeah, and and PJ, you should have seen a lot of the very derivative comics I tried making in my teenage years because <laughs> angels featured quite heavily. I can tell you, you wouldn't believe how many times I tried to copy and trace Zariel's wings from this book. I mean, let's be honest, angels still feature quite heavily in your work, but no wings, PJ. No wings. No wings. That's the difference. We have an editorial edict on that, but. <laughs> I lo- I right off the bat where I'm like I think I love this book. I don't know what the hell I'm reading. It's like, oh, he's not just a guy with wings. He's an angel. And I'm like, the hell does this mean for like like what? The Superman lives in a world where there are angels? Like what's going on? Like I I was already like I'm in. I'm in. This is this is weird and I'm enjoying it. Yeah. It is brilliant. And these two small panels of Zariel first of all just punching out an invisible guy. And then turning around and walking away as the narration tells us he looks driven and he's heading down to where they keep Hammond in the basement. And then he says, even the cockroaches were running away from what was down there. Like, genuinely, uh, it's kind of chilling. Yes. Um, This is ostensibly a superhero comic, but this is starting to feel a bit like a horror. And, And like... I think this is kind of why I fell in love with Morrison's work because I've always loved the fact that when Morrison is at their best that they never insult your intelligence as a as a reader like yes they can throw these things at you where you're like I have no idea who the color queens are I have no idea at this point John didn't know there was an angel didn't know the rainbow raider could run really fast I don't know what a Hammond is that's it at this you know I, I was a little ahead of you at the time this book came out because I've got the advanced years on you. I'd had more time to read JLA. <laughs> but I, I was still relatively new-ish to DC. JLA was the first series I'd properly collected. So I didn't know who Hammond was either. But this caption, this moment, made me want to. Mm. Like, I don't know what a Hammond is, but apparently the cockroaches are running away from him. It's scary. Yeah, it is. It is. And then we cut back to Aquaman, who's just finishing off Dr. Light. <laughs> yeah, Aquaman has made, like, like very short business of um, these guys. Like, he's just wiped them out in no time. Yes. Yeah, and there's a great panel of as the lights come back on, Aquaman punching Dr. Light in the face with his metal hand. And Kyle is kind of picking himself up, uh, torn, bloodied. And Aquaman's like, hey, Kyle, we need you, you, need, we need you to make us a... Uh, and Kyle just goes, I lost my ring. And uh, Aquaman's like, you you lost it? Like, you're powerless without it. And Kyle's like, well, look. Oh, Kyle's basically like, look, I'm not a civilian, all right? You know, I'm. I, it's a small thing, but he's like, look, okay, look, we're desperate. No time for big conversations, but like, I've lost the ring, but I'm still a leaguer, basically. Yeah, and to be fair, from what we saw, he was holding his own against those, the Color Queens, before Dr. Light made him blind. Hmm. Oh, yeah, and God, like, can you imagine, like, the stress Kyle must be under here to have lost the ring 
as well. Like, that's basically his... It's his thing, PJ. It's like his one thing. You can imagine that this was a bit of a wake-up call for Kyle, because I think you can sort of... The way it's been described by the Red Dart, you can see how it plays out. Kyle's like, oh, they're in prison. I can just get down there and deal with this. Bit cocky, gets taken out, loses the ring. Real wake-up call. Well, also, something I liked about Kyle in this era was that he was the only Green Lantern. Yes. Like, um, if I have any kind of issue, it's a mild issue, but if I have any issue with the greater Green Lantern continuity, it's simply that because a Lantern is one of many, it kind of slightly reduces the specialness of having a ring, because lots of people have them. But at this point, this really was the most powerful weapon in the universe, and and you could believe it. Yeah, for sure. And then we cut to um, the uh, clock tower in Gotham, where we have um, Batman and Barbara, a.k.a. Oracle, monitoring the situation on computer. And, um, you know, they know that the situation is deteriorating. But Batman is there, and uh, he just goes, tell them I can't make it. Where's Superman? Because we're still in No Man's Land. While all this is happening, No Man's Land is still happening in the Bat books. But he could theoretically make it, which is something I found interesting. I'm assuming this is just more of Batman's Gotham is my priority. I'm I'm needed here at the moment. Yeah, I have to assume it's, it's maybe Batman like holding his cards close to his chest. Like he has this kind of, this is, something's not quite right here. And he's kind of, I don't know, choosing to stay and monitor. It's that classic thing where ultimately kind of, Batman's brain and you know kind of being able, being willing to stand back and take the bigger picture is probably what makes him a strength to the league but in the moment I think if any of his colleagues knew that he wasn't coming they'd probably be a bit hurt to be honest yeah yeah but we then find out where Superman is <laughs> as we turn the page and there's a huge flaming spaceship satellite thing crashing to earth and a tiny red caped figure right at the front trying to hold it aloft and um we see uh and then we get a shot from kind of ground level where uh we see that fireball of this kind of falling space station rocketing across the sky and pj i have to say i've always been a bit confused by this panel are we looking at Bell Reeve? I've assumed we are. Yeah. Yeah, because it's basically, it looks like a riot and there's people with super, you know, super costumes kind of punching people. I have to assume. That's kind of what I figured was going on. Yeah, and it looks like they're punching people in like a uniform, some kind of guard uniform. So my, I, I think it's supposed to be Bell Reeve. The satellite is flying over the prison. And in the, um, well, uh, I guess kind of uh, cockpit, for lack of a better word, on a satellite, we have uh, three kind of uh, astronaut slash scientist kind of folks. And uh, the light, the lighting is red. It's very much kind of, um, you know, um, uh, danger, danger stations. This is not good. And one of them points out that um, this station weighs 70 tonnes. How strong is Superman? To which uh, uh, his uh, his uh, colleague replies, shut up. Uh, the temperature in the cabin is at 116. He only has to be as strong as it takes. Now, I'm wondering if, if we're supposed to know who these people are, because 
one of them is is called Nathan and seems to be some kind of cyborg. He's got like a cybernetic eye thing. And yeah, I, I, I have to say I'd never paid too much attention to it. I mean, like spoilers, we, we know this is a, a Star Labs satellite. I think that comes up. Yes. So maybe like, oh, I don't know, do you think they could have been supporting characters in a in a Superman book at the time or? Potentially, yeah. Because Star generally popped up in the background of Superman, didn't, didn't it? Yeah, Star Labs were, were a big, big, they, yeah, they were in Superman books a lot, I think, in the 90s. But then we get a little a little close up of uh, Superman, uh, kind of, I guess, kind of like grimacing, I suppose, as he, you know, he's just kind of wrestling to keep the, the station from exploding. Yeah. He's yeah, also on but... fire. <laughs> so is his cape. Uh, Superman himself, in fact, is on fire in this panel, but he's Superman. He doesn't care about fire. So we cut back to Belle Reeve, and uh, the um, we have Kyle uh, kind of uh, doing an amazing kind of like drop kick uh, onto a like a pirate themed villain, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure who these two are. I don't know if they're actual existing villains or if they're just Howard Porter creations. Uh, and we also have Aquaman just kind of not even like slapping, but just kind of like pushing a man's face to the ground. Yes. While also holding his Atlantean sonic blunderbuss on one shoulder. <laughs> but he says he's only got three more charges for it, and there's something generating a bloodlust in the prisoners. He can he can sense a presence. Because he is psychic. I mean, we do we we do we do forget that. He is Aquaman is mildly telepathic. Yeah. Yep. And then Kyle points out that two more villains are coming towards them, and there's a big pterodactyl guy who is orange, so he's definitely not Sauron from the X-Men. <laughs> And then another sort of clay-faced-looking dude in red, and the dinosaur one starts talking about the R-complex, the reptile brain, and that he'll tear their lungs out and feel nothing. And then the clay-faced dude says, yeah, you heard him, first time in jail. Boy, are you in for a big Jurassic surprise? And then turns around and punches out the pterodactyl, because he's actually Plastic Man. Yeah, and... You know, I'd always wondered whether we were meant to know who Plastic Man was kind of shape-shifting into, like whether he was meant to be impersonating a particular villain, I do not know, or whether he was just impersonating a big, a big thuggish kind of, yeah, well, frankly, like an ogre, uh, essentially. But um, the R-complex, PJ, the reptile brain, I wonder if that will come up again. Hmm. No, I don't think so. Uh, so um, Plastic Man uh, deposits uh, the pterodactyl and kind of shapeshifts back uh, to which Kyle is like could you at least give you know Kyle's under a lot of stress at the moment he's like could you at least give us the heads up when you do this crap <laughs> because we're being attacked on every side right now I'm a little tense yeah and then Plastic Man says well I was following Zariel down to the basement but then I heard you squealing like Piggy from Deliverance so there's a reference the kids won't get <laughs> <laughs> if we're very lucky, PJ, the kids won't get that reference. <laughs> Although I do, my my wife's told me a, a story about how her dad put that film on as a family film one afternoon because he's a big <laughs> fan of westerns and he'd heard it was a western. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um. But again, like I have, I you know, I I had at the time never seen Plastic Man before in my life. 
Uh, but we get a nice little bit of dialogue from him where he says, uh, these cons are baying at the moon. I've been to jail and even under severe conditions, this is not normal. Uh, but then um, Aquaman takes note of the fact that um, Zariel was heading down to the basement, apparently. Hmm. Yeah, and he just takes charge. He says, okay, Plastic Man, try and get Superman and Batman down here. Improvise if you can't. Kyle and I are going down to the basement. Yeah, something's something's up. And I do like how this is like, you do get a sense that like something is really wrong here. Like, you know, they're, they're heroes, they're used to fighting villains, but something's kind of off because we've seen... Again, well, we've seen just like the kind of ripped open carcass of a of a prison guard. Like, there's a level of violence here which is unusual, and I also like that in the mix of it, uh, in the mix of it all, you've got Plastic Man, who's you know ostensibly cracking jokes, but is always a lot more serious than he actually lets on. And I love yeah. how Aquaman can just trust him, can just go, look, Plastic Man, you're we're leaving the ground floor to you, basically. And I, I kind of love that in a small way. It, it kind of speaks to his his resourcefulness as a hero. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to get a great Plastic Man moment in a few pages' time, in fact. But before that, we go to an interlude, and oh, look who it is. We're in the asteroid belt. We're on 433 Eros. It's the General. And again, you know, talking about characters, where I have no idea who the hell this is. Um, I'm like, why is there a big naked man with tusks sitting on an asteroid? I don't know why he's naked. When they teleported him there, he had trousers. Maybe he ate his trousers out of boredom. <laughs> but he doesn't need food. Well, that's what. Well, that's what we learned, PJ. As the uh, as the narration uh, very very kindly points out, the general doesn't even need to breathe, and often forgets even to pretend which I kind of love. <laughs> and um, we also get confirmation of the, the weird um, time frame that this series is taking place in, because, of course, time in comics is, is hard to keep track of. But apparently it has been months since uh, the um, JLA defeated uh, General Eiling. Or Ealing, Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, and he's just been sitting there counting the stars. I wonder how high he got. And, uh, but... Um, a spaceship has turned up. Uh, a weird designed spaceship. It looks almost a little insect-like. And uh, the general can suddenly hear a voice in his head buzzing like an old radio. And we, we see a, a silhouette of a, of, a, of a woman. We don't know anything about her, but um, she says, and I'm, I'm not going to do the accent because it has a certain kind of uh, buzzing quality to it, but she says, uh, the group we represent has a proposition to put to you it will require your returning to Earth with us. We cannot imagine you'll say no. So straight away, so you're going, well, who are these characters? I need to know more. And I was going when I first read this, oh my God, they're bringing back the general. And oh, there's like, if you could almost do an entry on, a, maybe there is an entry for something like this on uh, TV Tropes. There's a very particular delightful energy this gives me. And you see it in a few things, and it's quite hard to describe, but where it's like all these villains we, we've known and loved, and they're slowly getting recruited. In fact, come to yeah. think of it, that's almost a Morrison that's almost a Morrison hallmark. I think that's been done quite a bit in Morrison books. Uh yeah, that 
I think it has actually. You're right. Yeah. I think in uh, in Doom Patrol, there's about six issues where we just see mysterious characters getting recruited, one per issue, before we actually get the. Um, well, I mean, spoilers, but where we actually get the um, the team up we're we're expecting. <laughs> but we we cut from the asteroid belt back to the watchtower where Steel and Huntress are still worried because whoever it is that's broken in is still coming. Huntress says he's he's through the magnetic maze, he's through the ultrafuge, and then Steel just just flies off to try and intercept this this individual. Says, I don't know who you are, but you're facing a man whose patience is at the limit. And then says, wait, I know you. And we turn the page, and it's only Mr. Flippin' Miracle. I'm so glad he introduces himself, because again, I would have been absolutely lost at this point. Um, I also love, and it's a very small detail, but I love where Steel goes, uh, let me go in first, Huntress. And she just goes, be my guest. Yeah, <laughs> you're the one Huntress with the armour. <laughs> Huntress is is the most sensible person on the moon and has no desire to get involved in this. <laughs> yeah, but Mr. Miracle introduces himself. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm Scott Free. I'm Barda's husband. Sorry about the mess. I thought my old Justice League ID would let me in and then the security system started and I just went into automatic and I've destroyed everything. My bad. And again, Morrison, not insulting your intelligence, you get just enough information to tell you everything you, know, you need to know about Scott Free because uh, Skeel just goes... Mr. Miracle, the ultimate escape artist. Right. I guess it's back to the drawing board. Yeah. And can we just say, Porter draws the hell out of Mr. Miracle here, but he is one of my favourite Kirby designs. I think he's one of the quintessential Jack Kirby designs as well. The way his, the colours of his costume, the slight details, the shape of the eye holes and the the clasps that hold his cape with its big collar in place. It's, I love Mr. Miracle. He's genuinely one of my favourite things Jack Kirby's done. Oh, agreed. Agreed. It, 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 it's um, many, you know, conventional character design would tell you that he's maybe a bad design. Yeah. Because there's a lot going on there, but it goes right round and becomes genius because yeah, yeah it's yeah, he, he's, just, he's just wonderful to look at. Pure superhero nonsense. Yeah. He's superb, and he's he's going to be sticking around for this trade as well, which I am very happy about. And um, you know, as if that wasn't enough, um, a boom a boom tube uh, kind of opens up to the point where you'd be thinking, "I wish uh, Scott had just taken a boom tube in; it probably would have been easier." <laughs> and leaping out of the boom tube uh, is um, Orion. Only he's got a dog with him. <laughs> yeah, he's got a big dog that looks like him and the, it does it does look like him and uh the dog is is a massive dog and it's wearing uh it's wearing a big metal jack kirby collar and i guess we can infer that its name is Sturmer because uh orion just goes it's here Sturmer's mega senses detect the evil of the old gods on earth <laughs> pj um oh. this is comics this is comics and i love it this is this is both Morrison and Porter heavily leaning into Kirby, and they do it so well. They re- they get it. They get what Kirby was doing with the new gods, and and not a lot of people do. No, I find a lot of people really fundamentally aren't very good at writing the new gods these days. Um, I think there's even been times where Morrison hasn't written the new gods very well, but in this instance, they get it. It's oh perfect. God. Oh my god, yeah, and it, and and it's when you just go like. Oh wait, like these aren't superheroes, so to speak. There's something else. 
like they dress this way, but there's yeah, and just the way they talk, like I, I'm like I'm in. I like I didn't know I wanted this, and suddenly it's all I want. Like it's so weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, but from that we cut back to Belle Reeve, where um, uh, kind of like um, descending further into hell, which is kind of fitting, I suppose. Uh, the Red Dart is um fleeing. Well, not fleeing, I guess kind of traveling because he's got a very particular place he's trying to get to. He's going through the bowels of, of the prison and um, there's just like corpses like everywhere, like fires are burning and there's just like dead, torn bodies just kind of like strung up against the bars. It's dark shit. Like it's really dark. Yeah, yeah. And um, I also like that he's got the he's got Kyle's ring like cupped in his hands because, uh, again, it's just kind of surrounded by this aura of energy. Um, it's, yeah, small little thing, but I love it. Yeah, and he makes it to a, a part of the prison though that is sort of under the control of of Killer Moth, and there are corpses torn to shreds everywhere, and he's quietly crawling through. But then does take a moment to convince a prison guard to take a picture of him wearing the ring. The guard begs him to protect him from Killer Moth, so he hits him with a couple of darts so that he won't feel pain when Killer Moth comes out of his cell. But unfortunately. <laughs> He says, I figured the toxin would last long enough so the screw wouldn't feel nothing. And then as he leaves, you hear a scream behind him as Killer Moth attacks. And he just says, even the best of us can make mistakes. And I, I just want to just want to pause for a moment, PJ, because we're about to turn the page on mm. what was probably a life-changing moment for a young John. <laughs> um, but... Uh, this is a this is um uh this is post um oh you're better with this stuff PJ the um the DC event where a bunch of villains sold their souls to Neron yeah because that was before Rock of Ages what was that called I can't remember but that was where so we know for a fact that Ocean Master gained incredible new powers but whenever he it always came with a price because that's what making deals with the devil does uh but Ocean Master was racked by terrible pain if he ever put down his trident. Yeah. And Killer Moth, who was a very kind of like jokey, ridiculous Batman villain, got transformed into a literal giant insect person. It was like what happened to the Wasp in the 90s as well, but scarier and lasted longer. Yeah, and did Batman have to tangle with the, this new and improved Killer Moth? I don't remember. I feel like there was a time where Killer Moth became more of a Titans villain. Oh, interesting. But I'm not 100% sure. Don't hold me to that. But again, like, this is where this book is a... This issue is a horror story because, yeah, like, you've you've literally got, like, Killer Moth in the background, like, wrapping up bodies in cocoons. And I very much hope they're already dead. Yes. Yeah. That guard is now who took the photo of the red dart wearing the Green Lantern ring. <laughs> Poor guy. Well... Yeah, maybe maybe um maybe the red dart should have hit him with like three darts rather than two. <laughs> that probably would have been enough. <laughs> but then we get this moment where we realise where the red dart has been headed. And he says, uh, the contact was waiting for me right down there at the end of the last mile. And he opens his door and we see the crackling of I guess electricity. Hmm. And as we turn the page, PJ, we get this incredible panel 
of, well, I guess we're not supposed to know who it is, but um, it's Prometheus sitting in the electric chair. Yeah. Very like, oh my God, like mostly in silhouette, like lightning, electricity, like crackling all around him. Just looking like so calm, composed and just like terrifying. Like, oh, like I, I had, I was just like, who is this guy? This is incredible. I, I, yeah, honestly, this is why I love Prometheus just from his one panel. Yeah. And whereas I first time I read this was like, oh my God, Prometheus is back. I'm going to get to see Batman kick his ass. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's like, you know, we, we've seen that, you know, this whole prison is going to hell. Uh, we've seen that like the JLA, despite being taxed, are kind of on top of it. Yeah. Seemingly, you know, there are seemingly they can respond to any threat. And in the midst of all this hell and chaos and murder and like bloody torn bodies and everything, we've got this one mysterious figure, and I have no idea who it is, sitting in the electric chair, looking completely calm, like yeah. looking completely under control. And I'm suddenly like, oh my God, like, I have no idea what kind of villain could actually put a legitimate challenge to the League. And so I'm just I'm just completely intrigued, like knowing that they could actually have a decent fight on their hands. It's it's just amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. And he says quite a distraction. It's like Dante's Inferno out there, and then the Dart just says, Well, I can't take credit for it. I don't know what's going on. Something spooky. Everyone's going nuts. I just took advantage. Here's the ring. You know it doesn't work for anyone except Green Lantern, right? Oh my god. And then he, he reaches out, puts it into Prometheus's hand. And Prometheus goes, it won't have to. Wait here. I need 10 minutes, and then you can give it back. <laughs> and then there's just a click, and he disappears. And it's, like, and it's that familiar click for him activating his key to get back to his crooked house that we saw when he first appeared. Oh, PJ, you can't see me right now, but I'm shaking my fist. What? How, oh, does this not just make the disservice that DC has done to Prometheus all the more egregious yes it really does this is a character this this is a character who deserved to be an a-list villain like he should be up there he should be he up should. there as one of jla's greatest enemies and then no one knew what to do with him except morrison so they just made him rubbish talk about kill your darlings oh my god well this is sadly someone else killing killing your darling. This is Yeah, exactly. This is, <laughs> talk about someone else murdering your darlings. This is subsequent creative teams taking Prometheus out behind the woodshed. Like this is Oh, horrible. He's such mm. a disservice. Yeah. So yeah, so the sense of kind of like growing dread that like some like who are these mysterious figures who are being recruited or or, or who are operating in silence? Like um our heroes are clueless. They've got no idea what's going on. Yeah, whereas if and if you come to it like me and you're going, hang on, so this issue has both the general and Prometheus in it. What is happening? How? Oh God! <laughs> so um, from that kind of amazing moment, we cut to uh, a beach somewhere where um, the satellite, uh, sorry, the space station is kind of resting in the water. Yeah, and the three Star Labs cyborg guys are just standing there going oh superman's already left didn't even stick around to be thanked 
and you get this amazing half-page panel then of Superman flying through the air at speed, still on fire, his eyes glowing red, and a determined look on his face, because he knows he's got to get to Belle Reeve, and it, stuff's going down. He actually, like, I always thought he looked vaguely like in pain, where almost like he has really exerted himself in a way that we rarely see. I just assumed this was, he was, he was angry. Oh, well, yeah, or, yeah, pissed off as well. Um, it's the tragedy of Superman, really. He can't be everywhere at once. Mm. But um, as we turn the page, we see um, the the riot kind of continuing out in the prison yard. And uh, we get the Red Darts uh, narration and basically kind of, you know, almost narrating from the future where he goes, um, well, you know, later on when they were tidying up everything and handing out the blame... It turns out that the Shadow Thief was masterminding the whole thing from a second dimension. Um, which, uh, and then we see like a, I guess the Shadow, the Shadow Thief, PJ. Yeah. Who is a, like a living black silhouette, I think. Yes, he is, yeah. And I he's just want to say he's like a Green Arrow villain, but that might be wrong. So he's kind of like ranting and raving and screaming from atop like a, a burning car. Uh, and the Red Dart is just um, sceptical, really, just going like, yeah, I don't really believe it. I think he was as much under the spell as everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, but he is basically shouting, oh, freedom, and you know all that stuff that people in prison like to shout when they're rioting <laughs> about getting out. Uh, says the world's going to burn, pain and terror, endless war. And then it cuts to, <laughs> on top of one of the guard towers, you can just see silhouette of Batman stood up there, which makes everyone pause. And as the Red Dart's narration says, then it was just over. Urban legend, half the guys in that yard had their bones broken one time or another by the urban legend. And of course, I had, and as you've educated me over the course of this series, PJ, I had no idea that that was, that urban legend was a was a thing at that time. Yeah, yeah. You get a, a panel of some of the prisoners sort of panicking, one of them going, what did he say? It sounded like, I am woman, hear me roar. And then someone else saying, don't be stupid. And then Deadshot, who is here, nice little cameo, just says, don't even think it. He will hunt you down and make you eat the bullet as he stops someone else from shooting at Batman. And also, I, I could be guessing, I could be massively reaching here, PJ, but I've always believed that we see um, we see like a few little uh, villains in the background of this panel. Mm. And I've always believed that this is a Morrison and Porter cameo. Where Oh. I, you see what I mean? There's like a little red I, devil. Yeah. I think that's I Morrison. And I think the other one might be Porter. I, I think. <laughs> I could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, but the Shadow Thief is still starting, he's still screaming, still shouting about pain and blood and everything. But the dart says nobody's listening anymore as all the villains sort of slink off going, yeah, let's let's not. And then Superman arrives and just says, this was a bad idea from the start. And uh, Superman's cape is completely burnt off. Um, I, I just, I, yeah, I love the idea that like literally all it, well, all it took kind of was to burst the bubble of all this rage and bloodshed was the presence of Superman and Batman really because... I don't know. All these villains, they're not completely stupid. They're like, oh, yeah, no, time time to call it a day, I think. 
Yeah. Although Superman then turns to Batman and says, smart thinking, Plastic Man. And it turns out it was Plastic Man all along, just shape-shifting into the Batman shape to create the silhouette. And he just says, well, criminals are a superstitious and cowardly lot, they say. I know I was. And again, it's one of those moments where, where there's a lot being said without it needing to be said. Like, I can't imagine that Plastic Man and Superman hang out that often. Yeah. And yet... There's just a, a moment of Superman kind of seeing Rebeskin people and just going like, yeah, that was really clever. Good work. Yeah. And I think it's a brilliant Plastic Man moment as well that he just knows taking the shape of that cape and cowl in shadow on top of a tower is going to terrify most of these criminals. He's He only acts dumb, PJ. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Superman uh, just kind of tells everyone to go back to their cells Um you know, we have we have casualties to attend to. And he sees uh, the red dart holding, um, well, something green and glowing and just goes, I'll take that. We wouldn't want it to fall into the wrong hands, would we? To which uh, the red dart just politely hangs it over and says, no, sir. And then the narration says, thrill of a lifetime, man, looking him in the eye. Which is, it's so, even some of the villains are Superman fans. <laughs> But also, of course, because he is still a villain, uh, he goes on to to say, knowing that I'd be partially responsible for killing him all over again. So they're conflicted in their fandom. But that just describes fandom to me these days. <laughs> we love the things we hate, and we hate <laughs> the things we love. Yeah. But but there's more, PJ. There's one plot thread that needs wrapping up. Um, the basement, whatever the hell that is. Uh, and... Um, yeah, there's um, we we have Kyle, we have Aquaman, we have Zariel, and uh, Aquaman is uh, firing his kind of Atlantean blunderbuss. Uh, Zariel is mildly on fire, and they're looking at well, what what the hell are they looking at, PJ? So there's a man in a chair, presumably Hammond, and on his shoulders is a massive grotesque black and red eyeball with tendrils sort of snaking off it clinging to the walls to keep it upright and its its pupil is sort of smoking a, a sort of horrible red colour. It's got a real Cronenberg body horror vibe to it. Yeah, reminding everyone that this is a uh, this is a superhero comic. Yeah. Um, yeah. That JLA was not a horror book up until this point. Um <laughs> And uh, Zariel refers to it as uh, an emissary. And he tried to blind it. Um, and he starts to scream at Aquaman, you know, to get back, you know, its gaze is... And then and then um, there's a massive boom. And um, in just a badass panel, um, Aquaman kind of dives for cover as Orion and Sturmer just kind of come charging out of the portal. <laughs> both gritting their teeth and Sturmer frothing at the mouth. He's a good dog. <laughs> yeah, Orion just opens fire on the eyeball and just blasts it to pieces around Hammond's head. Yeah, and again, I, I, I didn't know who Hammond was, but apparently um, I, I, I do now. But uh, at the time I was like, oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a human head inside that big fleshy eyeball. And uh, it's very big. Uh, so even though uh, Orion has blasted this great big Cronenberg eyeball off him, 
um, Aquaman rushes forward and goes, careful, careful, his head's so huge it could snap his neck. So yeah. again, a nice, a nice quality because Kyle and Aquaman are now uh, supporting this uh, giant grotesque head, which is marginally better than a giant grotesque eyeball. Yeah, and I think even though he's a lantern villain, Hector Hammond, I think, I don't think Kyle had met him. I think he was very much a Hal Jordan villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's uh, he has immense telepathic powers, but is completely immobile, correct? Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, so the League are, I think, mildly traumatized by this, and they're like, um, Aquaman points out that, you know, the walls were, you know, psy proofed because he's a telepath and if you're going to lock him up you don't want him controlling people's minds no one could hear him screaming while at the same time that weird eyeball thing was broadcasting effortlessly through heavy duty psionic cladding to so which it was the eyeball that was basically getting in the prisoners heads that caused them to start acting out of control and then we get some few ominous lines where Zariel goes I know what it is it's why heaven assigned me to you. It's the old dragon. And then Orion, who's kind of scooping up a load of pus on his fingers, just goes, this was only a remote sender. Its master is on his way. Mageddon is here. Ooh. Shivers. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Sturm has got a bit of the eyeball in its mouth and is, is chowing down because he's a good boy. Sturmer has earned his num-nums, basically. <laughs> but that's and not then, the end, PJ. No, we've still got more. Superman is using his heat vision to put the, the cells back together to basically weld the bars back into place and says uh, that'll hold until we can count the dead and points out that the prisoners themselves seem shell-shocked. Yeah, like, it's generally... They're all generally aware now that this is, like, this is above and beyond. Something was weird, um... I mean, Aquaman points out that like he 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 doesn't think he's ever seen men descend so far into barbarism. Yes, and then he says, "What was Orion talking about? What's the emergency meeting?" And Oracle is on the line, and she says, "Look, this is New God stuff." Um, also, it turns out that the first killing in Belle Reve was actually carried out by the prison warden. The riot started after he personally executed a young inmate. Pretty dark. Yeah, it's pretty dark. Um, it's grim. And Batman is monitoring the whole thing, goes, something smells, keep me informed, Barbara. And just because he's leaving, Bar- uh, Barbara points out, like, wait, like, would you believe it? Two wars broke out in the last five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and And then we go back to the Watchtower where Mr. Miracle, Huntress and Steel are there and... Mr. Miracle's giving us a rundown on Mageddon, effectively, saying, you know, the the fiery death of the old gods devastated creation, giving birth to our universe and the fourth world of the new gods. But there is still a weapon from those times. It has resurfaced. It is Mageddon. That's what Mageddon is. A, a pre-universe weapon of the old gods. And there is apparently a rumbling on the moon as... Um... Uh, golden robots start descending on the moon. Um, it's uh, it's new Genesis technology, basically, um, which uh, Scott has brought with him. Uh, this is why Orion and Barda were drafted into the JLA. 
it's for fortification of the earth. Which I seem to recall, PJ, when Orion and Barda joined, isn't that what Tachyon warned the League of? Yeah, we'd or- they'd already had the scene where they went to on on New Genesis where they were warned of Mageddon's approach. That was the first mention of the word Mageddon in the series. But didn't Tachyon also say something like, prepare um, for the fortification pre- yeah, of Earth? Yeah, prepare for the fortification of Earth, yeah. Yeah, so it's all, it's all coming to pass now. And as we see these kind of golden um, golden robots kind of descending on the watchtower, uh, we get the Red Dart's narration again. And, uh, you know, he's back in his cell and he's, he's kind of reminiscing and looking up at the moon. And um, he goes, uh, you know, I, I said to the contact... You know, why me? Why did you pick me? And uh, this mysterious contact, who we know is Prometheus, says, uh, my research picked you out. That's the difference between big time and small time. You know what I'm saying? Research. <laughs> and then he said, sometimes even an ant can start an avalanche, Tony, like he knew what I was thinking. Yeah, and then we see him staring at the photo of him wearing the Green Lantern ring. <laughs> I think you would, wouldn't you? Oh, you would, you would. And he says that he's he looks at the moon and he knows that the one thing they'll never understand is how much we hate them and how happy we'll be to see them fall. And we're still not done. We're still not done. And it's not even an epilogue, PJ. This is still the story. Um, we see a uh, computer screen showing, well, it's Kyle's ring, isn't it? but from yeah. four different kind of angles as if it's being analysed within an inch of its life. And uh, we have a voice saying, uh, well, the um, the Star Orbital Lab was an inspired touch. I'm impressed. That took power. I wasn't sure you had. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you've got to assume, again, the pagination isn't quite how it was in the issue here because we just get shadowy figures on this page and then the reveal right on the other side. I imagine there was another page turn. But yeah, the other shadowy figure in the room, the first time we've seen this figure in this issue, talks about how power is their currency. They don't make the same mistakes twice. Mentions that the League humiliated him once. But this time there's no margin for error. Then Prometheus we can see in the background. So Prometheus is one of the people in the room. They talk about their collaborators inbound from deep space. Batman's too preoccupied by the Gotham disaster to notice what's been happening. The League's time is divided, dealing with all the little crises we've been fomenting behind the scenes as they stand before a model of the Watchtower. And then we get a splash page. Prometheus in the background on a balcony. And um, literally, uh, thematically, and actually, like every sense of a word, we have Lex Luthor towering over a model of the watchtower as Prometheus looking down from above goes time for the new injustice gang to strike then wouldn't you say Luther to which Luther replies yes Prometheus I'd say it's time (laughs) it's the end you animals it's the end you didn't know you didn't know what was coming and there it is ah it's just who else could be the main villain of Morrison's final, final JLA story, but Lex Luthor. I mean, it would have to be, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's too perfect. It is also, like, again, 
it was chilling going into this story, knowing nothing about the series that had come before. Didn't know who Prometheus was, no idea who the general was. I I knew who Lex Luthor was to some extent through the Superman cartoon, but I was like, I don't know what's going on. So it's chilling if you're coming in blind. It's doubly chilling if you've actually read the series and you know yeah. who these people are and you know what's coming. It's like a greatest hits. It's like, um, yeah, it's, it, it's like, a, I don't know, it's like the Beatles, the number one album. It's, it's all the biggies. Yeah, throughout this this trade, you're going to get callbacks to basically every Morrison story so far. Because <laughs> um, we get... Rock of Ages right here with Luther referen- and even Dr. Light in fact referencing the previous battle with the League you get the general from the Ultramarine storyline Prometheus shows up it's oh it's so good and we've talked before about how good at Morrison and Porter together are about at bringing a, an, a certain atmosphere to a book we talked about it during the Angels on Earth storyline and mm. Prometheus as well and again I think Atmosphere is a word you can use. This this comic is so atmospheric. I now um, clearly we're doing a podcast about the work of of Grant Morrison, and so clearly um, we are Morrison fans. Uh, so you know maybe my opinions are slightly biased here, but I I would actually say that this issue in itself is a perfectly paced comic. Like, yes. We, we've talked about Morrison stories which are felt a bit rushed, felt a bit chaotic. But if you actually just want, like, I don't know, like a, a masterclass in how to lay out a 22-page comic to have multiple plot points but to give them all equal weight, and, as you say, to, to, to create, like, a mood and a, and a theme, like, this is... It works as an individual story while also setting up big things. Like, this is... It's such a brilliant issue. Such a, I was so lucky to start here, PJ. Yeah. You were, you were. And I think I was lucky to come at it from the other side as well, because it it just, it works in every way. And so much is packed into it that it feels like it almost shouldn't. Mm. But yeah, it's superb. It's, it's, there's, there's the horror elements to it. There's the action sequences. You get Superman catching a falling satellite from the sky as only Superman can you get some amazing villains. It's, oh, it's so, so, so good. And and to know that we've, we've come off the back of like two kind of standalone filler issues, which which were good, don't get, don't get us wrong. But like, if this is what happens when Morrison Porter take, not a holiday, but kind of, you know, take a little break to properly charge and focus their energies on a new big storyline... If this is what you get, then I am all on board with this because I think Morris. This is some of Morrison's best writing on the series, yeah. Um, and I think also it's some of Porter's best artwork. Like he's on fire this issue. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And I think it works better for having had those two fill-in issues before it because I think if you'd gone straight into this from Crisis Times Five, it would be too much. Oh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's too. Two big stories back to back is is too much. Having those smaller issues in between is is just like gives you a palate cleanser, almost. It's so. It's just also just so interesting. Like coming if you do if you were like a young a young John and you came into this 
really only knowing Batman and Superman from their respective cartoons, which, of course, were Saturday morning cartoons. They're not going to go into the depths that this issue goes in terms of violence and whatnot. But, like, it was just so wild to see these characters in such a strange, unsettling adventure. But also, like, even though Superman is surrounded by, well, you know, bloody murder and and weird cosmic space horror and stuff he still it still doesn't feel he he doesn't feel out of place if that's what i'm trying to say like yeah superman still shines through even though the world gets kind of dark around him i find it very believable that this is a world superman inhabits yeah yeah oh definitely definitely and all the league <laughs> they're not all in this issue but it feels I think Morrison does a very good job when when they have issues where you've only got a few league members of still making it feel like you're just with the whole league in a weird mm-hmm. way. Do you know what I mean? It, oh, it, for sure, yeah. It's odd, but yeah. I love how a different creative team could have told this exact same story with the exact same characters. And, you, you know, you could have, gosh, gosh, PJ, there's a riot at, at Belle Reve. The league better leap in. You know, and you could it could just be as bog standard of the league arrive on the scene and they instantly start, you know, dealing with the rioters and like, oh, there's a mystery. We need to get down to the basement. It could be very kind of matter of fact, and it probably still would have been entertaining. I think the thing I love about Morrison's writing style and his approach and their approach to characters, sorry, is how the a lot of the characters act in unconventional ways for a superhero comic while still being heroic. Yeah. You know, for example, oh my God, like um, a mysterious figure is breaking onto the watchtower and Steel and Huntress are around. Well, the traditional way of telling that is for Huntress and Steel to rush out to fight the dude. And then we have a fight scene. But instead, yeah. Steel's like, oh, I'm going to go deal with it. And Huntress is like, yeah, go for it. You know, because Huntress is smart and doesn't want to kind of just rush into a fight. And that tells me a lot about her character. Um, you know, um, Plastic Man. It's like, we don't see him arrive, but he's already behind the scenes doing weird, cool, creative stuff. It tells you a lot about the characters and how they, and their personalities and their motivations without having to outright say it. It's very clever. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And it's it's not even... Like, you'd think that would be chapter one of World War Three. It's not. It's just a prologue. <laughs> that's ridiculous as well. Well, that's weird, isn't it, PJ? Because we're about to get another fill-in issue. Yeah, I... So, the fill-in issue we're about to get is the... This was the month when uh, the Day of Judgment crossover hit all of DC. Every book tied into it. Oh, and interesting. You've got to figure this is the JLA tie in, which is actually almost an epilogue to the Day of Judgment story. Um, you, I've got to wonder if, like, the editorial edict was every book this month has to tie in. And Morrison and Porter were like, well, we, we can't. We're doing our. It just doesn't fit. Mm. That can't happen. And so, editorial drafted in another team to just put this issue together almost got lucky i guess in a way that it hit between the prologue and part one so you could almost say yeah this 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 works ish but 
it doesn't make a lot of sense in the grand narrative of this trade. No, and and it's a fine it's a fine little story. Um, it's it's just certainly unusual. I I think um, particularly as this was around the time where I was starting to take proper note of the names that were going into making a comic. Like I was like, oh, who is the creative team on this? Oh, Grant Morrison, Howard Porter, that sort of thing. But I was still naively. I don't. I think I kind of assumed that the creators, if you will, were more involved in the production of the comic, which of course is not the case. That's an editorial thing. Mm. And as we learned from the Wizard magazines, you know, um, you know, um, oh, I suddenly can't remember who the name of the editor on this book is. Hang on, Dan Respler. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, yeah. You know, couldn't um, couldn't get hold of Morrison at times. You know, because Morrison was over in in Glasgow, and you know they were they were in New York. Um, so you know, I imagine from Morrison's perspective, they were kind of almost working in a bubble, and they're like, okay, look, I'm just going to deliver, you know, my the conclusion to my storyline, and they're not getting any say on why there's a filler issue or why there's a you know there's a little break in the story. I mean, if, heck, like. You know, Porter hadn't even met met Morrison at like an early volume in the series. So I kind of imagining that Morrison may have already written the scripts and dusted their dusted their hands of the thing and was was off doing something else at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's bizarrely, it's one of the issues I, I the only issue in this trade I read before I got the trade. Because oh. I bought it. I, I I bought it as part of buying some of the Day of Judgment books. Uh in fact, I think for some bizarre reason you know i was in my early 20s so it's 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 just how it goes in fact it wasn't even that i was 18 18 or 19 <laughs> but i i had it in my head i needed to buy every single day of judgment tie-in and i did interesting yeah and it was one of those crossovers where you didn't need to do that some of the books barely tied in at all but <laughs> this was this all um i forget was this the fall of Hal Jordan or was this for kind of redemption of Hal Jordan as this a, was as the a... redemption of Hal Jordan so uh day of judgment is this, basically the at the the end of the series they need to get a new human host for the specter because the specter has gone rogue I believe he gets controlled by Neron it's been a long time I might be wrong about that but it means they need to find a new human host but it's got to be someone who's dead and so they've got to find they can't put someone good in there because if someone's too good the spectre won't be the spirit of vengeance they don't want to get someone from hell who's evil in there so they have to go to limbo and find someone whose life is sort of balanced people who were both good and evil at times in their lives on almost an exact same level get sent to limbo and that's where they get hal jordan right okay and so hal jordan becomes the spectre at the end of day of judgment yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like, um, despite the fact that we have an actual angel on the team, uh, I always found it, it was always odd to me, like, how um, literal the DC universe was when it came to, like, kind of good, mm. evil, heaven, hell. It's a very, like, kind of absolutist universe that deals with these really big concepts. So it's still kind of wild to me to hear that, like, there's actually, like, a limbo, shall we say. <laughs> And yeah, that's Day of Judgment was a weird one. I, I I sort of enjoyed it at the time, but I feel like if I revisited it now, I wouldn't get anything out of it particularly. Mm. Um, although I have to say, I liked, as a way of bringing Hal Jordan back, making him the Spectre. 
I liked that, and I thought it was a, a really good way of still having Hal be around, but have Kyle be Green Lantern. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Like, you know, this, you know, again, I, I imagine we'll go into into great detail on it next issue. But yeah, I, you know, I was, I totally liked the redemption kind of tragedy of, of, a, of a hero who fell from grace. And I, I felt it was kind of sad that they had to wreck on it all. Yeah, yeah. And it just made me a little bit sad when they did rebirth and suddenly Hal was no longer the Spectre. He was just Green Lantern again. And I was like, oh, that feels like taking two steps back. Um, in terms of this issue, PJ, and I, I have, I've, I've, you know, joked about it a couple of times, but I do honestly feel like my own journey in comics, in making comics, has, on some level I only barely acknowledge, been about recreating this book. Like, <laughs> I, this book was so kind of like foundational for me that, like, to this day, I have a real joy of joining a series. At, at the last moment. Oh, okay. Uh, and I, I blame this book. Like, I love the idea of not knowing what on earth is going on. Mm. Because it makes me feel that, like, these characters have a have a life... They have a, they're bigger than just this story. Like, I go, oh, cool. They've battled Prometheus before. I've got no idea who Prometheus is, but that sounds like a really cool adventure. You yeah. know, it, it makes me think they have a history. So... And, I, and, I, and I'm realising, as, as I say it out loud, I think when I inevitably eventually hopefully get to the end of afterlife inc the ending of afterlife inc which i have planned i think Ooh. is a, i think is essentially this story like not not exactly but you you, you know what i mean like it's is, it's like is it going to be called world war four uh uh it will be called world war six because it will be twice as good oh well <laughs> maybe no, I, <laughs> aim high leave a margin of error um no, just I, I, I think this book just set the template for me of like have a lo- you have a long running series, you drop plot points and threads throughout, and then you you weave them all in for an explosive finale. Like that's that's what I'm aiming for, really. Yeah, <laughs> I probably won't. I probably won't pull it off nearly as well, but that's what I'm aspiring to. If you even pull it off half as well, I think you can be happy. Thank you, PJ. Yes, well, again, and and frankly, it will only be you, me, and anyone who listens to this podcast who knows that it's all just a weird art piece where I'm just trying to recreate <laughs> Grant Morrison's run on JLA. Why not? Why not? <laughs> but no, Prometheus uh, kind of sitting in, a, in an electric chair lives kind of rent, rent-free in my head, basically. It is, it, it's incredible. The image that sticks with me from that issue is is the the first one of Kyle, that splash page where he's fighting off the villains and he's not got his ring. Yes, you're just, right. That really stays with me, and the, the the pale shape of the ring on his finger where it should be. What again? Yeah, and just you know the, the amazing work that um, Porter does here because yeah, I'm I'm thinking also of kind of Orion bursting out of the portal with with Skirmer. Um Like I had no idea who Orion was, but that was just the most incredible looking panel. The lights, the color, the characters—it was just remarkable. Yeah. Plastic Man's Batman Gambit as well is is something I absolutely love. Oh my god! Again, so many great moments that could could be the linchpin of an issue entirely on their own, and yet Morrison's just Morrison's just kind of driving around town in in their Pope mobile, just kind of like chucking these <laughs> left left and right to an adoring crowd. Like we're it it is an embarrassment of riches. This issue, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, it's so good. One thing I will say, though, for the next issue is it's nice that we're getting one more shot with Mark Pajarillo because oh he's back God. on the art for this fill-in, and I am looking forward to that because I do really like... I think of the, all the fill-in artists they've had, Pajarillo is my favourite. I agree. I agree. Um, Mark, you know, Mark Pajarillo, absolute talent. Um, you know, and it's nice to have a book which alternates between Porter and Pajarillo and then back again. I, I, I don't think the series... The series is, is arguably maybe never looked better than mm-hmm. in this book. Um, yeah, and and while I'm I'm sad that we we don't get more Padrillo comics, I'm glad that um, he's gone on to have a, a I think a pretty good career in 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 video game art. I yeah, say. yeah, yeah, and uh, you know he we've said before he draws the hell out of these characters. He's so good at all of them in quite a different way to Porter, but. Yeah, he he he's a superb talent. I mean, mm. the fact that they got him in to draw part three of the Ultramarines is just, and that then he basically became the regular fill-in artist for JLA for the next two volumes. Oh God, yeah, and I think um, doesn't um, oh, in Wag's run doesn't doesn't he return for a bit? I can't remember. I've got a feeling he might do actually because I think there's a couple of issues in between. Porter leaving and Brian Hitch coming on board, so they may have turned to Pajarillo for that. Where's my copy of Tower of Babel? Not <laughs> Where is here. it, PJ? I, I, I won't. I won't tolerate um, uh, ambiguity. It's it's not in this room, so I cannot help you. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to have to buy my own trade trade paperback. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I should say that. Um, as uh, as an update to my adventures in secondhand books from last episode, I have now got my hands on my copy of JLA Classified and World Without Grown Ups. Hooray! So I cover them. I realised how much I had missed collecting books from this period of DC. Like, no, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> I need to get my Tower of Babel. I like, yeah, it's bad. I kept telling myself, oh, I need to I need to find new things, PJ. I need to kind of no. branch out. Old things, buy old things. I know, I know, I know. I, there's just a level of satisfaction I'm, I'm getting from it, which is oh, chef's kiss. I uh, I recommend f- trying to find some kind of copy of Heaven's Ladder as well. Yes, no, that'd be good. God, yes. Well, you know, frankly, this you know, as we go into our adventures beyond Morrison, like um, this could be a good excuse to do so. Yeah, well, I feel like the Wade Run is something we're going to look at, and Heaven's Ladder is very much a part of it. So. Mm. We are going to have to, I think, adjust the intro to the show when the time comes. We'll need. Like, I'm leaving diff- that to you. You know, the oh. intro is your domain. <laughs> hey, we could mix it up, PJ. You could be the intro guy. I don't want to. Oh, okay, well, maybe I'll do. It. <laughs> uh, PJ, uh, we, we've. I think we've talked at length about this, but is, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, not really. Just that. In a weird way, I'm both excited and a little disappointed at the, the next issue we have to cover because it is a good issue. It's a good, solid story that I really enjoy, but I want to do the rest of World War Three. <laughs> Agreed. I know it's... Um, I, I assumed it was all part of some bigger plan. Um, I have to believe now it wasn't. It was just editorial nece- yeah. necessity, but it's... It- it's a, I don't know. It's a fine little standalone story, perhaps. It's just, yeah. um, it's a distraction from where we're trying to go. It, it just, it feels like it's in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah. But hey, if if we really have, um, you know, gone everywhere we 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 can today, um, I would, I, I guess I should say a massive thank you to uh, Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork, and to Elliot Red for composing and performing our superb theme tune, Justice. 
And if you enjoy uh, hearing PJ and I ramble on about stuff, you can find our details in the podcast description. It's always always a delight to uh, to connect with you online. And PJ, if there's nothing more to add, could you please see us home in your own unique fashion? Yeah, come on my socials. Look at the pictures of me feeding a red panda. Do it. She's real cute. Her name was Emma. And...